The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. So for early modern people, sleep was very closely linked to uh, death. And actually, if you look at some of the contents of bedtime prayers, they look very much like uh, miniature rites of passage. So it's the same formulation of words that you get when people are preparing themselves as they're about to die. That was Sasha Handley on how people regarded sleep in the early modern period. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today we're going to be hearing from Sasha Handley, who's a historian based at the University of Manchester. She's been researching the history of something that we all do on a very regular basis, perhaps even after listening to this podcast, and that is sleeping. Sasha is going to be bringing her expertise on this subject to an event on Saturday the 25th of November at Manchester Museum entitled Sleep Lost and Found, which is part of the UK-wide Being Human Festival. Our world history editor, Matt Elton, caught up with Sasha recently and began by asking her to tell us a little bit more about her event in Manchester. Well, my event's called Sleep Lost and Found um, and it's taking place at the Manchester Museum. And essentially, it's a partnership with the Children's Sleep Charity. And they and I share an interest in... um, thinking about how we can um, improve public education around sleep behaviour and particularly around the sleep behaviour of children because um, we are well aware that we are in the grip of uh, a sleep crisis. This is the the term that has recently been used by the World Health Organisation. And something like 40% of kids in England and Wales um, are currently believed to be suffering from some kind of sleep problem. Now, for the most part, that is behavioural in origin. Um, so we're running this event to uh, open people's eyes, I guess, partly to the value of getting a good night's sleep for physical and mental and emotional health. Um, and we're trying to do that creatively by thinking about sleep's history. So we're looking back to the early modern world, um, the so-called golden age of sleep, um, and trying to draw through a few lessons that we can apply to modern day practices to think about why it was early modern people seem to have slept uh, much more um, effectively, much more restfully than we do now. That's really interesting. What sort of problems do you mean when you talk about the present day? So for the most part, we're just looking at persistent uh, sleep deprivation. And what I mean by that is that kids and actually most adults in uh, modern industrialised societies in the West um, are getting consistently less sleep every night than healthcare practitioners advise. 
Um, so I went to Berry High School this just this week, actually, to speak to a bunch of 12 and 13 year olds. Um, they're supposed to be getting about nine and a half hours every night. Um, and I found one boy who was getting five and a half hours because he was playing on his PlayStation 4 until 1 a.m., um, getting up in the morning after about um, after only five, five and a bit hours sleep and feeling dreadful. Um, and we know that that persistent sleep loss is linked to all kinds of horrible developments. So um, it's linked to higher rates of obesity um, because what you do, of course, when you're tired is, is find another source of energy. So you're, mu you're much hungrier um, when you wake up tired in the morning. We also know that kids are not performing at their best at school because they are um, consistently underslept. Um, and we think most of that uh, sleep loss is due to um, not eating the right things as bedtime approaches, but also to overstimulation um, and the use of devices with blue lights uh, being emitted from them, which of course stops the production of melatonin in the brain. And that's your sleepy hormone that will get you to sleep at the right time. So, I mean, how, how recent is this? That's a much harder one to answer. Um, the technology here is obviously important. So, uh, a lot of historians are wondering whether the onset of industrialization is a, a major kind of game changer for the way that we practice sleep as we start to shift to a much more sort of mechanized um, system of clock time and factory time. And of course, that coincides with the widespread um, use of artificial lighting technologies as well. So um, the shift from your sleeping habits being driven more by the seasonal patterns of light and darkness to a kind of mechanised artificial electric lighting system is one that we think plays a really important part um, in shifting the, the kind of physical environment. Um, but I think also our, our habits of sociability at bedtime have really transformed in, in the digital age. So it's only really in the last so 10 to 20 years that we have these um, handheld devices that are now a kind of routine part of children and young people's social interactions. Um, so I think that has um, had a lot to do with the acceleration of these kinds of problematic routines in more recent times. You talked there about the early modern period being a golden age for sleep. Why was it such a particularly good period? Um, well, I think there are two principal reasons, and they're both about uh, motivations. They had very powerful motivations for looking after their sleep in this period. And that's because um, getting a good night's sleep between eight and 10 hours per night on a regular basis um, sat right at the centre of a preventative culture of healthcare. So it's it's very different to the kind of responsive mode uh, situation that we have now. Um, medical interventions were expensive and not particularly effective in the early modern period. So actually it's the household that is the central space in which um, people's sleep quality is managed on a daily basis. So um, they make sure that they look after their sleep because um, Keeping that in, in good regulation, along with getting enough uh, exercise in the day, enough fresh air, um, is how you keep your bodily fluids in harmony with each other and how you maintain good long-term physical and mental health. So it's part of that very distinctive uh, preventative healthcare culture 
But sleeping well and having good regular bedtimes is also a really important way of people demonstrating that they're a good Christian. So it's a, a powerful part of their motivations um, as faithful people um, that, you know, that's that's one of the really key reasons that they um, were really concerned when they weren't getting enough sleep because they thought not only is it bad for my health, but I'm also disrespecting uh the God that I believe in by not practicing regular bedtimes. So even if their reasons were different from ours, they did definitely know about the value of sleep, both for health and I guess moral reasons by the sound of it. Yes, absolutely. So the sort of moral ethical framework around sleep is uh, is very different to the one we have today. Um, I mean, you know, you can uh, find any number of examples of people celebrating the fact that they only need sort of four or five hours sleep per night. Margaret Thatcher was famously one of them. I think Donald Trump is another. I mean, it's certainly interesting that across society, though, people seem to now prize the fact that they are someone who actually somehow has evolved beyond the point of needing sleep, which seems strange. They do think that, but it's unfortunately um, just not true at all. There's a huge amount of evidence emerging now from neuroscience sleep laboratories that are mapping the devastating effects that um, prolonged sleep loss has on body and mind. So um, there are now really powerful links connecting um, long-term sleep loss to higher rates of cancer, to higher rates of diabetes, to particular forms of dementia, including Alzheimer's. Um, so you can never actually catch up um, on the sleep that you lose each and every single night. Um, and recent figures suggest that most adults in uh, modern Western societies are only getting uh, an average of six hours each night. Um, and, and we're supposed to be getting it at an average of eight. So are there any lessons that we can draw from the golden age of sleep to help us get better at doing it in the 21st century? Yeah, absolutely. So actually a lot of the things that early modern people did to um, encourage a good night's sleep um, are still important today. So, for example, they engaged in really helpful pre-bedtime habits. So they read a lot. Um, they took part in sort of calming activities like embroidery, sewing. Um, of course, they they knelt down and prayed at the bedside. And if you think about the physical and emotional effects that that activity has upon your body, it's actually a really effective way of calming um, the body and brain down at that crucial moment in the evening. Um, it's a way of putting the, the cares of the day to one side and thinking about um, higher, more important matters. So they did that, but they also made sure that they um, that their diets were well set up um, to encourage a, a natural and healthy night's sleep. So they prioritised foods that wouldn't irritate the stomach at night time, and they prioritised ingredients that were thought to have a cooling effect. So they ate an awful lot of lettuce <laughs> and... Um, Households were also manufacturing uh, sleep remedies that they could just have on the shelf um, and, and pull off whenever they were um, having a disturbed night's sleep. And most of those um, soporific remedies uh, work on this cooling principle as well. The idea being um, that, a dis that disturbed sleep was usually caused by an overheating of the stomach or of the brain. So they took um, they took care for notes of, of what they were eating and, and when they were eating it um, and made sure that 
that good healthy sleep routines were part of a more kind of holistic healthcare practice. Something that interests me about the idea that they were doing these things partly as calming methods is the fact that there were lots of fears associated with sleep in this period. What sort of fears were those? Yeah, so I think all societies um, across time and culture uh, note some kind of apprehension of, uh, of danger at bedtime. Um, but of course, the source of those dangers are what makes cultures distinct from one another. So for early modern people, um, sleep was very closely linked to uh, death. And actually, if you look at some of the contents of bedtime prayers, they look very much like uh, miniature rites of passage. So it's the same formulation of words that you get when people are preparing themselves as they're about to die. Because there are any number of examples in scripture, which was obviously um, very well known in those years, and in classical literature, um, where sleepers were taken in the night, um, were destroyed by enemies, or indeed their souls were corrupted by the devil. So bedside prayers are actually an attempt to beg for God's protection during the vulnerable hours of sleep, because, of course, that's the period of, of time in which we're not able um, to defend ourselves and to discern the approach um, of potential dangers. Um, on a more practical level, of course, they were also very worried about uh, bed bugs, which were pretty endemic. Um, and we know that they uh, went to great lengths to um, cleanse their wooden bedsteads, which were often very old and very uh, cosy places for bed bugs to hide. Um, they also used to bathe their faces and hands with things like rose water um, in order to um, to make sure that the bed bugs didn't come near those exposed parts of the body that weren't covered by the bed clothes. Um, and I've even found one episode of somebody hanging a piece of cow's dung at the end of their bed to try and att attract the bed bugs away from the, the sleeper's body. So it probably didn't smell very nice. <laughs> so, I mean, they were concerned about bed bugs and they were also concerned about the devil specifically. Is that right? They were absolutely. Yeah, because um, it, it is in the night that the devil is at the peak of his power. Um, when his servants are thought to be most active in the world. So if you think about um, all of the stories we have of, uh, or reports, I should say, of early modern witchcraft, um, they're usually most active at night time um, when, of course, the guard of faithful Christians is down somewhat. Um, so that's when we find instance, a lot of instances of the devil creeping up on people. Um, you know, we also have nightmares that are often thought to be inspired by the devil. They can have bodily origins, but um, there are things that can be induced by the devil's approach as well. So people are um, concerned to make sure that their sleep posture is correct to try and avoid the onset of a nightmare. So they, they try and avoid, for the most part, sleeping on their backs because they think that's the position in which uh, nightmares are most likely to come on. Um, and sleep posture actually is is kind of an interesting topic in itself because most sleepers were recommended uh, to rest uh, on a stack of pillows so that there was a, a gentle slope created between their, their heads and their stomachs to prevent the regurgitation of food during the night. Um, but they were also advised to sleep first on the right side of the body, which was thought to be hotter than the left. So, um, 
it heated and helped to speed the process of digestion in the first half of the night. And then uh, when you went to bed for your second sleep, because of course this is a period in which people are taking two separate phases of sleep for the most part, rather than the one consolidated cycle that we have now. Um, when they return to bed for their second sleep, um, they're advised to turn on to the left cooler side of the body to release the vapours that have built up. Um, and so they'll feel refreshed in the morning when they uh, when they get out of bed. What do people do during that break between the two sleeps? Lots of different things. It depended on who you were, um, what kind of house you lived in. So lots of people are staying in the bedchamber to read. Um, we know that servants are up finishing household tasks that they didn't complete during the day. I found uh, clergymen brewing beer at sort of two o'clock in the morning. Um, and, you know, married couples uh, often using that interval of time to, to procreate, to grow their family. Um, and we also have evidence of people simply praying um, by candlelight or um, by the light of the moon if they're sat near a window. So a big range of things. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. How were ideas about good and bad ways of sleeping transmitted? How do people find out about them? Well, partly, of course, it's, uh, it's generational. And we have um, lots of household recipe books um, that are full of soporific sleep remedies that were passed down um, from family member to family member across many generations. Um, but we also have um, evidence from people's letters and diaries um, where they're talking about having conversations with family members and companions. Um, and then, of course, there's a huge amount of uh, cheap printed medical advice which is available on this subject. Um, so if people didn't already know the best way to go about getting a healthy night's sleep, they could simply um, pay a penny for, for a ballad or a few pence more for a, a cheap printed pamphlet, um, which would give you the basic set of advice principles that I've already mentioned. We opened by talking about children in the 21st century. Were children in this period thought of as being particularly at risk? Yeah, um, children are, I think, uh, thought to be particularly vulnerable. Um, and we find um, 
some evidence of practices which probably look both strange and slightly dangerous to us today. So um, we have some evidence, for example, from uh, North Yorkshire, uh, well into the 18th century, which suggests that parents are actually hanging um, iron carving knives over the cradles of their babies during the night um, as, a, as a symbolic, but also a kind of tangible way of scaring off diabolical forces that might visit them when the parent isn't watching over them. Um, slightly less uh, frightening than that, though, are putting the child to bed with a, a piece of coral or some kind of um, amulet, like a, a, a wolf's tooth um, on, a, on a neck chain. So those kinds of materials, which were thought to have protective qualities in this period, were often placed close to or near the body of the child when they're in bed at night. Is there anything from this period that you'd like that you think would help people re-understand sleep and I suppose their lives more generally today? I think there are a couple of things, apart from the sort of practical advice about, um, you know, regulating your diet and making sure you have the the right kind of cool environment in which to sleep, which are all sort of embedded within early modern sleep culture as they are today. Um, I think we could take a leaf out of their book in just noticing the degree of control that ordinary people took um, over their own sleeping lives, if you like. So, you know, there's there's a propensity today to simply seek out the, the advice of a medical professional or a kind of drug-based therapy um, if sleep is going wrong. And actually, it's the advocation of behavioural change, which I think is, you know, at, at the root of the... Um, the shifting sleep culture that we need um, in our own modern, incredibly busy lives. You know, there are so many um, pressures that are, that are condensing our sleep into a smaller and smaller space. And I think we need to recognise how important it is um, for physical and mental health and also um, how much power we ourselves um, should have over sort of guarding its boundaries um, as people did in the early modern world. This golden age of sleep you referred to, when did it come to an end, if that's the right way to look at it? Yeah, that's that's a tough one to know. So my research has ended um, in the mid-18th century, um, and I certainly don't think it's, it's over by then. Um, I would suspect that we're looking at a, a mid-19th century story, um, as I mentioned before, you know, with the onset of um, industrial forms of working practices, and of course, the the huge involvement of child labour um, in that process of economic and social transformation. So I think that's where the um, the roots of some of the acceleration occur. But I also think that you know our digital revolution has got a lot to answer for. Um, you know, in terms of offering us the devices which are. Um, occupying our attention but also um, that you know they've become addictive haven't they um, particularly at night time when you've got that free time to to be chatting to somebody um, in a different time zone on the other side of the world so you know a global digital world has opened up any number of possibilities of ways to spend your time that appear at least on the face of it to be more exciting than than going to bed at 10 o'clock um, but, you know, there's nothing that makes you feel better than a, a good night's sleep, is there? You think about springing out of bed in the morning after a good eight hours. There's no other feeling as good as that. 
Is there any way in which you'd like your research to help people understand the, the period we're covering here in a different way? So this kind of early modern period, how would you like people to understand it differently, I suppose? I mean, we know a huge amount about the early modern periods um, and it's it's pretty startling in a way that that my book is the first sort of explicit attempt to write a history of its sleeping habits. So there's a, there's a lot more to be done, but um, I think it also opens a nice window onto the kind of daily preoccupations um, and anxieties of a typical household. So you can get to the kinds of people who don't appear, for example, in in legal records or um, who haven't left their own sort of individual trace because, you know, they weren't rich enough or important enough or or male enough um, to, to have cropped up in other sources. So I think you know, we need to do a lot more of that bottom-up kind of history um, to really piece together a fuller picture of the sleep culture of this period. But I hope at least that this research will spark um, lots of future inquiries um, and perhaps correct some of my assumptions, um, for, you know, by going into a lot more depth um, about the, the kind of contrast, for example, between those who live in the countryside and those who live in towns, Um, There's a huge amount that remains to be done, but uh, it's a step in the right direction. Definitely. I mean, are there any particular mysteries that you'd like to see solved? Well, I think your question about when does uh, the golden age, if we we should indeed be calling it that, when does that end and why does that end is a really important one. So I think that uh, that is a crucial question that many people, and not just historians, um, need to start thinking more seriously about, absolutely. Um, In terms of other mysteries, are there any other that I would like to be solved? Um, I guess there's a lot more to be be done on um, sleep disorders in this period, which do exist. So we have accounts of sleepwalking, um, which are, are quite interesting and really understudied. Um, and we also have a few insomniacs as well, um, who I really haven't had uh, had time to to study in depth yet. So it'd be really interesting to see um, if any of the genetic sleep problems that we have in the modern world were actually present um, in the early modern world as well. So whilst I've been saying that a lot of our problems today are caused by behavioural issues, um, that's not always the case. There's always an unlucky small percentage of people um, who are genetically predisposed to some kind of sleeping problem. Um, so I'd love to know more about them, actually, um, in, in my period of history. That was Sasha Handley. Sleep, Lost and Found takes place at Manchester Museum this Saturday, the 25th of November, from 11am to 4pm. You can find out more details at beinghumanfestival.org. And Sasha's book, entitled Sleep in Early Modern England, is out now, published by Yale University Press. Now, if you're interested in contributing to our understanding of sleep, our sister magazine, BBC Focus, is conducting a research project with Goldsmiths University of London, looking at the sleep phenomena of exploding head syndrome and sleep paralysis. They're asking people to participate in an online survey on this topic, which is available at sciencefocus.com forward slash big sleep survey. Now, just before we go, here's a reminder that our York History Weekend is taking place over the next few days. Tickets to some talks will be available at the event, so please do come along if you can. 
Okay, well, that's about it for today, but please do listen in on Monday when we'll be discussing the hellish world of Victorian hospitals. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.